0: We're going to be continuing in our series in First Thessalonians, in chapter five and verse 27. And the passage today, very short, very sweet. First Thessalonians chapter five and verse 27. "I charge you by the Lord." that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren now i'd like to add to this the translation from the english standard version 1st thessalonians 5:27 i put you under oath before the lord to have this letter read to all the brothers strong now before we dive into this passage like to give a brief review of last week, the last message, and that is to greet one another with a holy kiss. And we saw that when we believe as we should, the truth revealed by God to us in the Bible, our open affection for one another in Christ will be another expression of the obedience of our faith in Christ. This is not a burden This is a blessing. We are not under a law, but we are liberated under the lordship of Christ to be unashamedly affectionate with one another. How we greet one another in Christ is a matter of our liberty under the lordship of Christ. But we should never forget that our goal is to please him in the way that we obey his word now many bible scholars and commentators over the years over the centuries have addressed this question and their answers are remarkably consistent but there is a very sad reason for the consistency of our quotes from last week i'd like to share with you something that i learned this last week i was under the uh, uh, i had the understanding that ChatGPT4 is a more efficient way of doing a search on the net, the internet, and therefore by asking it to give me some quotes, I was able to bring together some wonderful quotes exactly on the topic of greeting one another with a holy kiss. But then later I learned that there was an attorney who was a got into trouble because he used ChatGPT to uh, reference different cases in court, which it turned out were entirely fabricated. In order to provide the information that he requested, ChatGPT simply created entire cases that never happened with references that did not exist. So I thought, I better go check and see whether or not the quotes that I was provided with last week actually exist. And here is the transcript of what happened. This is me. Provide the primary sources for all the quotes you gave me from each Bible commentator. Here's the response from ChatGPT. I apologize for any confusion caused. The quotes I provided were examples of the general style and viewpoints associated with the mentioned commentators. But I do not have access to their specific works or the ability to provide verbatim quotes from them. I cannot provide specific primary sources or direct quotes from commentators like Charles Spurgeon, Albert Barnes, Adam Clark, Matthew Henry, or John Gill. While I strive to provide accurate and reliable information, my responses may not always reflect the exact wording or specific sources used by individual commentators. And so in other words, none of those wonderful quotes actually exist. And I, I share this not only to confess my sins before you, but also to warn you that this is part of the distortion that is coming upon the world, people are going to think they know things that simply do not exist. Now, these things may improve. Later versions of this artificial intelligence, GPT and others, may improve to the point where there's some reliability there. I know that when uh, Wikipedia first came out, there was a lot of difficulty keeping things accurate because people would be arguing as to what actually happened historically. But it has improved over time. Not that you can count on it entirely, but it is definitely improved. Now, I I bring this to your attention not only to apologize for my use, which I will not do again. I will not use that again. But in order to warn you not to rely upon this in any of your research, whether you're in school or in your profession. Uh, beware. We're dealing with something here that has what, what euphemistically is referred to as hallucinations of the, of the artificial intelligence. So, Lord, help us. Now, let's get back to our passage. The English Standard Version, First Thessalonians 5.27, I put you under oath... Before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, the question that springs to my mind as I read this commandment is why would Paul feel it necessary to put his initial readers or reader under oath to read this letter to all the brethren? The answer points, I believe, to a common problem that the church has had to confront throughout its history. And before we look at that specific issue and problem, I'd like to take a moment to define our terms. First of all, an oath is not the same thing as swearing. You can swear in an oath, but Jesus commands us not to do so. That when we make an oath, we're to just let our yes be yes and our no be no. And so we read in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 33, Again, you've heard it said that it was said of of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair black or white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever more than these is from the evil one. Now, in this passage, Jesus is dealing with the common practice of swearing when making an oath in order to increase one's credibility in that oath. To, in a sense, to borrow credibility from some other source. That making an oath is not a problem. We see various instances in which, in fact, we're going to see God himself makes an oath. But he doesn't swear, okay, uh, by anything or by anyone. So let's take a look here at the passage in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise, that's speaking of Abraham. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, that means unchangingness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is possible for God to, impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So an oath is is not the issue the swearing that was going on in Jesus' day, where they would swear by the temple, they would swear by their own head, they—I sw- mean—all kinds of crazy things—in order, it, it would be like a car salesman saying, "I—I abs- swear to you, this this car has never been in a, in a wreck." Okay, if it's not been in a wreck, you shouldn't have to swear to me about it. You could just tell me the truth, you know. But by building up all this extra credibility by swearing you actually are sinning and that that is a as Jesus said that comes from the evil one now a marriage vow is an oath and i, I think we need to get the word out to our culture about this a, a marriage vow is an oath that couples make before god and witnesses their families and friends and church family that they will be faithful to one another till death do us part that is an oath And it's intended to be kept. And so we, in spite of the fact our culture has disregarded the importance of this vow, this marriage vow, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we must be zealous for keeping this vow uh, in our own marriages and encouraging others to keep their vows as well. And so we're back to the question, why is Paul having to put his initial readers under an oath, to read his letter to all the Holy Brethren. What's the problem that is in view? Over time, there would be a problem of some church leaders using their privileged connection to the apostles to gain greater power and authority over their church members. Now this begins subtly, Uh, in the first century, but it begins to gain momentum as we get through church history. But we see the evidence of it in the way Paul, for instance, addressed his first letter to the Corinthians, and we'll take a look at that. We see this also in John's third letter, referring to a man named Diotrephes, and we will take a look at that as well. We see it in Christ's reference to the Nicolaitans, in the book of Revelation in two places, and we will look at that. And we see it in Peter's exhortation to his fellow elders in 1 Peter in chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Now, we are also seeing it here in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. The concern is that the letter will not be read to the entire church, that it will be somehow kept and hoarded, in a sense. So take note of what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Now, this is a subtle reference, but I think we need to stop and think about what the implications are. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul writes, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you, For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul is making clear here in this passage that there are no secret letters. There's no other information floating around behind the scenes. He's saying, we are not writing any other things to you than what you read and understand. This is it. This letter is the letter to the church. Now, the Apostle John, speaking to a man, or to the issue of a man named Diotrephes, deals with the same issue. And John writes in 3 John, verse 9, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Now, it's clear from this that Diotrephes had refused to read John's letter to the church. He says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes does not receive us. So he, he didn't deliver the mail. He didn't pass it on to the church. And so John continues in verse 10. Therefore, If I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren. These are the people who deliver the mail, deliver the letter. And forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. So Diotrephes is obviously in a position of authority and influence in this particular church. He's able to have his way. Unfortunately, his way is to exclude the writings and the ambassadors, the emissaries of the Apostle John. So Diotrephes is abusing his position in an outrageous way. Now John calls Diotrephes' behavior evil. Notice, in continuing in verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Now, there's an indictment. Demetrius has a good testimony from all. He's the alternative here. And from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face-to-face. To face. John prefers to continue this conversation face to face rather than to risk being censored by diatrophies. You see what's going on here. This is in the first century. The Apostle John is still alive, and there are those within the church who are attempting to control the narrative, attempting to control the flow of information. In order to gain greater power over the people of the church. Now, our Lord Himself confronts the doctrine and the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So let's take a look at that. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. But then he concludes in verse 6, But this you have, this is, this is a positive, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Hmm. Who are these Nicolaitans and what are these deeds that would cause Christ to hate them? It must have had something to do with using one's religious position to mislead others rather than leading them in the truth to actually lead them into error. Because Jesus picks up on the same theme in the letter, his word to the church in Pergamos, and he writes in chapter 2 and verse 12, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there Those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak, to put stumbling block, put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, we obviously do not want to be anything like the Nicolaitans. So we have to ask, why does Jesus hate them? What were they teaching? What were they doing? Well, we find this word hate is a very strong word in the Greek. It's the word meseo, which means to find utterly repulsive, to hate, or to abhor. It describes deep-seated animosity of one who is antagonistic to something he finds to be completely objectionable. So we're dealing with a really strong word here. Our Lord loathes the Nicolaitans. He rejects them entirely. This is not just a case of disagreement. It is a case of actual Hatred. So why would our Lord hate anyone? The answer is, it is because hatred is the morally appropriate emotion for him to feel toward an evil person who is knowingly doing harm toward others in Christ's church. Okay, that's what we're dealing with. Jesus hates Nicolaitans. And anyone like the Nicolaitans. He hates the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, you may be having a little bit of a problem with the idea that Jesus hates anyone. Okay? And I did as well. As I came to this passage and said, okay, Lord, this does not feel right. But then I looked and I found that there were other occasions in which Jesus' hatred was exposed, is revealed. In Matthew 18 verse 6 it says whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. In other words Jesus saying what's going to happen to this person they would rather be thrown into the ocean with a stone around their neck than to have to deal with what they're going to deal with when I get a hold of them. Jesus takes great offense at those who would cause his little ones to stumble. Now, what about Matthew 5, 43? I mean, this is a passage where Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So how in the world could Jesus hate anyone when he just told us that we're to love our enemies? Well, the answer really clarifies something important for us about our condition before the Lord. This passage is for us. Jesus has reserved to himself the administration of his righteous judgment toward those whom he hates and he does, when Jesus returns, it's a day of judgment, and those he hates will be punished for their sins. No one is going to get away with anything in this universe, and so either he is going to pay for those sins, because they have been confessed, and God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus for those sins, or else We will pay for them, or the the sinner will pay for them. But the fact that Jesus hates these sins, and let's be honest, hates those who commit these sins, especially when they are willfully done with intent, with evil, he is going to have a day of reckoning. So it is not that we are, are to say, oh, these people are all okay, we're to just love our enemies. Jesus is not saying he's going to love his enemies. He's saying we are to love our enemies. And here's why. Romans chapter 12 and verse 19 quotes the passage. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So Jesus is the only one who's going to administer this vengeance. And he's going to do it thoroughly. So we stand before God under the grace of God, the mercy of God, sinners who he would hate if it were not for the fact that God has made a way for us to be forgiven. We are standing before God in a state of mercy, but that mercy does not mean the sin is any less or that his hatred for sin has been diminished, but rather that all the hatred for that sin has been poured out upon the Lord Jesus himself upon the cross. And it was a very thorough judgment that Jesus bore for all of the sins of all of time in all of history, which God hates. So, that makes our salvation all the more greater. When you realize what you have been rescued from, what you have been forgiven for, what you have been saved from, the wrath of God... And so Jesus does, in fact, hate the Nicolaitans. And he hates those who are enemies of God and enemies of the cross. So, why does Jesus hate the Nicolaitans? How can we find out? Well, the answer is revealed in the very name, Nicolaitans. The name Nicolaitans is derived from the Greek word Nikolaos, Nikolaos. It's a compound word, Nikos and Laos. Now, the word Nikos is the Greek word that means to conquer or to subdue, to rule over by force. And the word Laos is the Greek word for the people. It is where we get the word laity. It is contrasted with the word clergy. Okay. So we have the people, the laity, who are being ruled over, evidently by some force, uh, by those who are conquering them. Now, when these two words are put together into one, they form the meaning, one who conquers and subdues the people. Think about that. One who conquers and subdues the people. All of the unsupported traditional speculation, and there's a lot of it, about the Nicolaitans being the disciples of Nicholas, uh, one of the first deacons, becoming a heretic, is an entire distraction from the church. Now, here's why. There is a doctrine, a very important doctrine, called the sufficiency of Scripture, and in the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, we, are, we, we learn that the Bible has everything in it that we need to know. And that we, if, in order to understand one passage, we need to simply consult other passages of the Scripture. When we go outside of the Scriptures to find information that we think is necessary to understanding what is in the Scriptures, we have just gone outside. We've gone extra-biblical. And you can do that in a lot of ways, a lot of subtle ways, and a lot of overt uh, ways. But, but this issue of Nicholas the deacon, his name was Nicholas. It was a common name at the time. Okay? And he was a deacon. And many have made a big issue of the fact that he was a proselytite. Uh, one of the, he's the only deacon who was a proselyte. Now, what's the big deal? He converted from paganism to Judaism, and then from Judaism... To Christianity and the case has been made by some Bible scholars that because of that he was very easily going to change religions whenever it suited his his purpose and that he became this heretic who taught this her- terrible doctrine that Jesus hates but all of that is extra biblical we don't have any evidence of that in Scripture. And there's not even, there's even historical testimony against that idea from some of the early church fathers. But because people are desperately trying to figure out who is this guy and what is, what is he teaching, what are these people teaching, they have jumped into extra biblical resources in order to explain the meaning of Scripture. And my argument is you don't need to do that. You never need to do that beware of those who say, oh, now we know the Bible is true because we have this archaeological information. Well, that archaeological information can so easily change from one generation to another. Don't go outside the Bible to understand what is in the Bible. So what is in the Bible? In this particular case, it is in the Bible that the Nicolaitans, the name itself means conqueror of the people. I think that's enough. I think that's enough for us to have some confidence. As to what they were doing. So. The Nicolaitans were those in the early church. Who conquered and subdued. The people. by whatever means. That's what they were doing. And Jesus tells us. He hates them. No. This is also why Peter writes, as he does, to the elders of all the churches. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1, The elders who are among you I exhort, who am, who, I who am a fellow elder. The, gra- the grammar is a little hard to say. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a, elder, a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So here's his command to the elders. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Now listen next. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So Peter is writing to the elders of the churches and he's having to warn them not to lord it over those who have been entrusted to their care, but rather to lead by their own example of a godly man, an example of sound doctrine in action. No, do as I say, not as I do, but actually do as I do. And so, when a born-again elder is leading a congregation full of born-again church members, leadership can simply be by example. We don't have to be coercive. We don't have to uh, play the authority card. We can simply lead by the power of a good example and the good fruit that comes from that good example. And so this is why Paul writes, as he does in our passage here today. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Or, as we see in the ESV, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Paul's letters are addressed to the entire church, not just to the leaders of those churches. And Paul is making sure that the elders in Thessalonica understand this. To have this letter read to all the brothers in the church counteracts the potential clergy abuse that we do see developing in the first century, but also continuing on after the age of the apostles. Paul is concerned that some of the leaders in the young church might hoard what is intended to provide liberation and blessing and comfort to the entire church. In John chapter 8 and verse 32, Jesus says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. By presenting the word of God selectively, church elders can distort the truth and use it instead to create captives to what will eventually become the Nicolaitans. And I'm going to go ahead and say it later in history, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, any Roman Catholic out there that may be hearing this, we're living in a, a new day. We're not in the Middle Ages, okay? The Protestant Reformation has taken place. We all have access to the Bible now. Uh, many in the Catholic Church today have clearly renounced the behavior of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. But the principle is still the same. When we withhold information from the Church that God intended the Church as a whole to have, we are acting like Nicolaitans. We are acting uh, like those who would trap the people in ignorance rather than liberate the people with the truth. Again, as with Paul's command to greet one another with a holy kiss, Paul is commanding this as well. I charge you by the Lord that, you, that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. So we want to read the whole Bible to the whole church. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 15 reads, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and nymphas and the church that is in his house. Now, when this epistle, this is the epistle to the Colossians, is read among you, see that it is also, is read also in the church of the Laodiceans. Okay, so don't you just, you read it, but also let the church down the road read it. And notice this, and likewise, read the epistle from Laodicea. So there's an epistle from Laodicea that the church in Colossia should get to read. And the church from Colossia should share the letter that they received with the church in Laodicea. And all the other churches as well. This is what became the New Testament. But we got a problem. Do we still have Paul's letter from Laodicea? Is it found anywhere in the Bible? If not, why not? Why would God allow his holy word to make reference to a a letter that we're all supposed to read if it's gone? But if it's not gone, where is it? It's not on the floor. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, we read, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. The words in Ephesus and are not found in the earliest manuscripts of this letter. We call it Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, but the word Ephesians is found nowhere in the letter. It's added later, according to the best manuscripts. Now if that is the case it could be that what we know as Ephesians is actually Paul's letter from Laodicea. It doesn't say but we know there's a letter out there somewhere and we got this letter and it's not addressed to any particular church in the original manuscript. So I don't have a problem with the idea that Ephesians is actually the lost letter to or from the Laodicean church. Now, godly men have suffered and even died for their attempts to read the whole Bible to the whole church. You know, we don't sometimes appreciate what has happened to bring us to where we are today, to have our Bibles in our hands in a language that we can understand. John Wycliffe, who lived in 1328 to 1384, was an English Catholic priest and a theologian at the University of Oxford in the 1400s. He questioned the privileged status of the clergy and advocated the translation of the Bible into the common vernacular of English. In the years before his death in 1384, he increasingly argued for the scriptures as the authoritative center of Christianity and that the claims of the papacy, that's the post, were unhistorical. Okay, in other words, this is not the way it started. Now, he was diplomatic, and that's why he was not killed. But by keeping the Bible locked up in Latin... The Holy Brethren were being kept in the darkness by the Roman Catholic clergy at that time. Now, another man named Jan, or John Huss, was actually burned at the stake for agreeing with Wycliffe. We read of John Huss. He lived from 1370 to 1415. He was a Czech, or Czechoslovakian theologian who became a church reformer and a predecessor to the Protestant Reformation. Huss is considered by some to be the first church reformer, even though some would designate that role to John Wycliffe, since John Huss was greatly influenced by the work of John Wycliffe. But it was Huss who was burned at the stake for his faithfulness to the Bible. Before his death, Huss declared, you may kill a weak goose, because his name meant goose in in the Czech language, but more powerful birds, eagles, and falcons will come after me. In other words, you ain't seen nothing yet. Roughly 100 years after Huss' death, Martin Luther would personally translate the Bible into the German language. So we're having this battle to get the word of God to the people. The people. There are men in the church who would withhold the truth of the gospel, the truth of the, of the Bible itself in order to maintain more control over people. This is what is the core of a, of a cult, okay? Uh, you see cults often built around a, person, a strong personality, and the careful regulation of how much information people receive. And secret doctrines. Things that are not discussed publicly. But which are only known by some inner circle. And that's what eventually led to the abuses. Not just to the Roman Catholic Church. But to other groups as well. And as we see the Nicolaitans are an early step in that direction. We also have the Gnostics. In Alexandria. And, uh, in In Egypt. Uh, Basically doing the same thing, rewriting the scriptures and telling us we've got different gospels, better gospels than Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. So you see the problem and Paul is addressing it with this simple commandment. See that this letter is read to all the holy brethren. So here we have Paul's command today. And there are still holy brethren in the world who cannot read Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians or any other part of the Bible because there is no translation of the Bible in their own language, at least not yet. And so the work goes on. Wycliffe Bible Translators USA has the goal for people from every language to understand the Bible and be transformed. That is their goal, their vision statement. It was founded in 1942 by William Cameron Townsend. It is named after John Wycliffe for obvious reasons, because he was the first one to translate the Bible into English. Wycliffe Bible Translators USA has led to the founding of 60 similar organizations around the world that are all networked together under the Wycliffe Association. And as of November 2020... Translations of either the New Testament or the entire Bible now exist in over 3,400 of the 7,300 known languages spoken on earth. So, there are only 3,900 languages left to go. Would you be willing to give your life in order that the whole church may read the whole Bible? You know, there is a need for additional missionaries to do this work of translation. And now we have wonderful tools with the computers, maybe even some artificial intelligence in there somewhere. But there are wonderful tools for getting this job, and it's going to be completed probably a lot sooner because of these new technological tools. But it only gets done when people take action. And I just want to encourage those of you here in front of me sitting here And those of you listening to this as a recording on the web, to prayerfully consider joining the army of those who take the word of God to those who have yet to have it in their own language. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all. The brothers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your wisdom. We ask God that you'd help us see uh, what is going on in the Bible and then to recognize what is going on around us today. Lord, guard the truth of your word. Preserve it, Lord, for us and for generations to come. Lord, if you come quickly, if you come in our lifetime, Lord, let us complete this project of taking the word of God to those who have yet to have it and hear it and read it in their own native language. And Lord, may we be a part of that, whether we go ourselves or whether we support those who do go. May we be a part of that heritage of John Wycliffe and John Huss and of others who have taken this seriously. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.